take first watch. an all-new traumatized episode of the First Watch Podcast. I am Zach, and I am not here with Cole, who has graciously bowed out of discussing today's movie, which is James Gunn's final installment to his Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy, that is Volume 3. So here to help me discuss that today is a guest host, my friend Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. And then joining us as well is our returning guest, Trevor, who was with us last fall to discuss Park Chan-wook's decision to leave. How are you, Trev? Howdy. I'm doing quite well, quite well. I'm excited. I always love doing weird lineups and excited to have Ben here for the first time. Excited to have you back, Trev, to talk about James Gunn. But before we get there, Trevor, have you seen anything lately? Yeah, I've seen quite a few things. This past week, I saw Chevalier, the Kelvin Harrison Jr. movie where he plays the first black Chevalier to Queen Marie Antoinette, and it's taking place just right before the French Revolution. It's also detailing his relationship with a singer played by Samara Weaving from Ready or Not during a production of a opera that he wrote that he's writing for a competition, but then so many other things happen in the movie. And it's basically about his face against the adversity, but also like being a cocky motherfucker. <laughs> he is the shit and he knows he's the shit. If this guy and Lydia Tar were in a room together, it'd be a fucking bloodbath. <laughs> but it's more of a movie about him realizing his greatness and how to really put it into other things outside of himself, including the upcoming French Revolution and seeing that come into play is honestly very beautiful. And the filmmaking on display, this is one of the directors from Damon Lindelof's Watchmen, Stephen Williams. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I forget which one he directed. I believe he directed either episode five or six, but it's quite well directed. There's a lot of great production and costume design in there. That's really pretty to look at. There's actually a great editing to it that I was very surprised by. It opens up just him demanding this crossroads kind of like guitar duel battle with Mozart. Oh, wow. (laughs) And it's such a fantastic opening to the whole thing. I do wish that it were a little bit longer because the movie also alludes to so many things that happen after the events of the movie that would have been so cool to see. That would have been like, oh, if this movie was 45 minutes longer, just detailing, looking at that, I would have loved it even more. But still, it was a pretty moving movie, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. also saw Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Oh, is that the Taliban one? <laughs> yeah, it's the one where he gets like shot by the Taliban and the interpreter from his troop drags him over like 100 miles over the Middle East back to his Air Force base. Was that anything? It's just you're kind of your average jingoistic movie, but it's directed by Guy Ritchie. It's weird to have that in 2023. That feels like 2013 yeah. is when you want to drop yeah. the jingoistic Taliban movie. <laughs> yes. It's taking place in Afghanistan after the Taliban has taken over. And I feel like Guy Ritchie is somewhat trying to say something about the U.S.'s involvement in wars over the middle east but it doesn't really say much of anything and in the end it just goes into very indulgent overkill to 
do a light spoiler. There's a scene involving Anthony Starr and an AC-130 shooting Taliban on the ground, and it's very absurd and over the top and very baffling. I've been on a DCEU rewatch leading up to The Flash because James Gunn, his whole universe is about to change, and I feel like The Flash is about to be a reset button. Right, right. Very likely. So me and one of my best friends here, we've been going over the DCEU movies. We just actually recently watched Snyder Cut, which is not really anything (laughs) at all. Four hours long. Yeah. It's so boring. The first two hours are filled with so much bullshit. (laughs) And then when it finally becomes something, it doesn't really become much of anything more than like what BVS is. How much of that movie do you think is just slow motion? How many minutes? (laughs) Oh, man. It's got to be at least half an hour. The first time that I watched the Snyder Cut, it was just one or two days after rewatching the Joss Whedon directed, abridged, truncated 2017 version of that same movie, which they're both bad in my opinion. But when I was watching the Zack Snyder Cut, I was shocked because you would get to a scene that was 10 minutes into that 2017 version and you are an hour into the film. And it's like, what the fuck? It's so gorged and horribly paced and just really not well structured so it doesn't really end up feeling like a substantively different film than that one but every beat of it that you hit you're hitting it 30 40 50 an hour longer into the runtime than you did in the original by the time you're at 90 minutes in 2017 you're at the climax like it's over you're getting to the end of it Versus you're not even halfway through the Snyder Cut. Yeah. I was having the same issue with they re-released the extended edition of The Return of the King. Mm, And obviously much, much better movie, but I ran into the same issue. Because I went back and watched the original two extended editions because I had not seen the extended editions yet. And Fellowship, we get to Gladriel at like the three hour mark rather than like the two hour and 30 minute mark. (laughs) We get to Rivendell 90 or 100 minutes in. It's like too long. It's too long. And it's just you don't need to add that much. I'll just open this up. Assuming that the Batman does not count, what is the best DCEU movie? Birds of Prey. I'd have to say, actually, another James Gunn movie, The Suicide Squad. We haven't gotten to the rewatch of Birds of Prey yet, but that is actually probably my close second. That's my pick. I think Shazam is probably number two for me. I have some issues with it, but I like the spirit of that movie Mm -hmm. more or less. I also liked Shazam 2 more than a lot of other people did. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I never saw it. It's very light and breezy. The villains are Helen Mirren, Lucy Liu. They're fun, but it's like, it kind of also is a weird vibes that the Power Rangers 2017 movie gave off. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. In terms of disappointing sequels, I actually finally caught up with Scream 6, the follow-up to Scream 5 from the directors of Ready or Not. I know that, Ben, you've seen that. Trev, have you seen Scream 6? I have not seen either five or six yet, despite really loving the original Wes Craven one. I just haven't had the drive yet to watch those ones. Uh, Yeah, you know, Ready or Not is a really fun movie, and I get fucking nothing out of Scream 5 and 6. I feel like other than Ortega, who is giving it the gas, and I don't even really love her in it, but like, she's good. Just the original Scream sequels 2, 3, 4, I don't love them, but all of those movies have good casts. All of them are like interesting, and they have sexy people getting murdered and this is like fucking anonymous people i don't give a shit about it just feels nothing you got samara weaving in six and she just feels utterly wasted i don't know five has evaporated from my memory six will last a little longer because there's a ladder scene in it 
that's really fucking brutal. And the latter scene is great. I really like the latter scene. And that's it. The first kill in that movie, I think, is neat because of the way that it transitions into the second kill, I think, is neat. But it's pretty much the only thing in the movie that I really think is like actually doing anything particularly fun or interesting. Yeah. I don't really dig any of the Scream sequels, though, personally. No. I remember watching Scream 2 on MTV one time <laughs> and then never really remembering <laughs> any of it. <laughs> The other shout for me, just because I watched it last night, I'll be a little indulgent. I got to see the 4K restoration of Martin Scorsese's 1980 Raging Bull. It just crisp, beautiful black and white. That's one of my favorite movies of all time, which I had not seen in years. So it was kind of a long-awaited, anticipated rewatch for me, and I got to see it in theaters where you get like just such a gorgeous sound mix and use of music in that to just take you right back into... The 1940s, when it's set, really emphasizes how gorgeous old Hollywood or you know maybe 50s, 60s, but it's post-code, so it gets to be a little bit more vulgar, a little bit deeper into the psychology of the character. And especially after doing some Rocky and Creed watches and rewatches this year, Raging Bull is also produced by Erwin Winkler. And you can kind of see how Raging Bull ends up being like a much darker reflection of Rocky and boxing sports films in addition to all of the other great things going on with it. I felt it was rewarding to get back into that after watching Rocky for the first time this year in a long-ass time. It's actually a big Marty blind spot for me. I really, really need to watch. I've been having my eye on that 4K Criterion now. Yeah, I really need to nab that. I own it on Blu-ray, but I have not sat down and watched it yet. Yeah, Ben, I think you will certainly like it a lot. What's funny is I'm interested to see how you think it compares to Rocky as somebody who really loves that movie. Mm. Like I've seen clips in like maybe sophomore year of college. My film director put a clip on from that movie, Joe Pesci's beating up somebody, which happens in every movie that has Joe Pesci in it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing the Wilson is slamming him in the fucking cab door. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's what it was. <laughs> and I remember thinking it was really good. And he shows a couple of scenes of just the actual boxing because he wanted to talk about how good Thelma Shoemaker is. Mm. But that's really all I've seen from it. That's a great Shoemaker note because it's the first film that she was allowed to work on per the guild rules that you have to be a member of the editing guild, which she was not a part of because they have these rigorous principles of like, you have to be an apprentice for this many years, you have to do all this. And at the point when she was told that, she was like, I've edited an Oscar-nominated film, so what the fuck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So 1980 was the first movie where she got to be in part of the guild, and you just feel it in the way that she cut that movie. She's like, she's trying to prove a point about how stupid that was. Yeah. Right. With the Star Wars celebratory day just passing us May the 4th, or oh, as yeah. I saw it on May the 1st, <laughs> Return of the Jedi came back to theaters. Oh, yeah. Ties in nicely with James Gunn. I feel like there's a Star Wars Guardians obvious connection there. Yeah, and it's very interesting, you like, because it's the third one to say goodbye to these characters. Mm, yeah. Well, at least ones we're about to be talking about, but these ones we, we see again, <laughs> but, unfortunately. <laughs> that's true, although we had from 1983 through 2015 or whatever. Yeah, Force true. Awakens. <laughs> that's a good point, though. I can't wait to see Star-Lord when he's fucking 66. Oh, God. <laughs> Pratt just coming out with a cane. It's like, I voiced Mario. <laughs> I was going to be Indiana Jones. My God. But yeah, it's not my favorite of the OG trilogy, but I still feel it's a very soulful and true to heart film. 
that really caps off that trilogy so well. It has two very introspective and intimate scenes, and both it's between Darth Vader and Luke. Like, talking to him, contemplating, is like, are you my father? Can I save my father still? And Darth Vader is just like, no, Luke, Anakin Skywalker's dead. And Luke's seeing it and was like, damn, yeah, no, my father's dead. Then it goes back to the other scene, my other favorite scene in the movie, where the mask is finally off. Literally and metaphorically, the mask is off on Darth Vader. There's the line, which is probably my favorite line in the movie. He's trying to get him off the exploding Death Star 2.0. And it's like, I still need to save you. And Darth Vader just says, you already have. Then he just dies. (laughs) It is a very short and sudden death. Like, it still catches me off guard how quick Darth Vader actually dies in that scene. Like, he only says a few lines after he takes his helmet off. But I think that little moment just really sells that whole thing for me, despite being somewhat repetitive in that final stretch. Yeah. Goes between, oh, Han and Leia at the shield wall. Now it's the space armada going into the trap, but then it's Luke and Vader. Goes in between those three for 20 minutes, and not really that much happens in those 20 minutes between those three scenes. But also the Emperor is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I fucking love Ian McDermott. He's having so much fun. He's having so much fun. I feel like even if you're like not so much a fan, you can at least appreciate that performance in that one because it's such a satisfying reveal to the Emperor. Yeah, I kind of have an issue with the Emperor overall in Star Wars. And one of the reasons for it, particularly after episode nine, he represents absolute evil. And in this movie, Return of the Jedi, where like the idea is the redemption of Darth Vader, having an absolute evil sort of feels like not correct somehow in the grander scheme of Star Wars. But I think in this original trilogy, they do such a good job of mentioning him and building him up. And then when he shows up and he's got the fucking Crayola guards, that's just such a great moment. Yeah, absolutely. He has a real sense of menace, but he also, I feel like even in that film, you can see to an extent why Anakin found him seductive because Luke finds him somewhat seductive. Luke knows this is a person he should not trust. And I think there's moments where he almost listens to the Emperor. Mm. I think you're right that it's weird that there's just this ultimate evil. But I think in those films, it works because he is a symbol of what Anakin gave into, and Luke is kind of the symbol right. of what can bring him back. So Vader's in the center of this weird love triangle with Vader. Well, not love triangle, but hate triangle, I guess. It works nicely, I think. But that's the only thing that works. That is the only <laughs> thing that works. Um, no, that's not true. The scene with Yoda is good, and the scene with Leia is good. The scene where she figures out that she's his sister. The line that always gets to me is, I'm a Jedi like my father before me, where you have that great little costume design thing where he's in that black fit for the entire movie which I think is sort of meant to represent a tentative move into the dark for Luke, which I don't think that the movie really does a great job of making you think that that's a possibility. But in that last scene, you see it open up and there's like that little white flap on his collar when he's doing that. You know, there's that great callback to it in The Last Jedi, that moment that everybody bitches about, where Luke is about to kill kylo it's like a basically a shot for shot remake of the thing where he's like wailing on vader and throws the lightsaber down whole third act of that movie works for me the rest of it i'm like eh, yeah it's okay. the effects are so bad mm-hmm. i'm gonna preface it by saying i saw it in the theater the theater i work at in the top level they recently installed some leds that are not functioning properly so they're way too bright i was a little taken out of the experience but oh, that no. but also just jabba's barge looks bad like it does not look good mm. There's a lot of specialized addition effects additions to both A New Hope and to Return of the Jedi. Empire's pretty spared for that stuff, although the color shifting is a little bit weird. 
So you have shit like in Return of the Jedi, there's like a Men in Black music video, basically. There's like a dancing CG alien doing yeah. a music oh number. My God. Or like even the ending, I think they added that like yub nub thing where you see some of the characters. When you see Anakin's ghost at the end of Return of the Jedi, who is the ghost? Do you see the old man? Christensen. Oh, ow, yeah. fuck that. That's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I understand. That's like the last human form in yeah. once the prequels came out, but stop. At the end, he adds all these shots of like all the planets that were saved, and one of them includes Gungans, and I'm not happy about that yeah. either. No. <laughs> Why are we doing this? <laughs> there are no Gungans in the original trilogy. Get this out of my face. Right, exactly. But you're right. The good scenes are so good that I can't hate it. But damn, I just it doesn't click as a whole for me. Honestly, hearing your case, I super get it because that first half is entirely Jabba's palace, including that Yoda scene. That first half is just a weirdly paced monster. It plays like an SNL type bit to me, like a sketch where people show up and make escalating offers because it's like the droids show up and then Leia shows up in disguise and then Luke shows up. It's like, oh, Lando's here too. (laughs) And it's just kind of like building and building and building and building on itself like a comedy set piece. And there's certain things like the Henson puppets, that weird little snake neck guy that I enjoy and think are really cool. But I think what kind of sinks it for me is I'm just kind of on Ford's wavelength that we should have just gotten rid of Han at the end of Empire. Because this whole, like, dedicating an entire first 30% of this movie to saving him is just a little bit, like, it just doesn't really click for me. It feels like this needs to be a movie about Luke's temptation to the dark, like I was saying. Like, that's just not really developed. It feels like he needs to be off on his own figuring that part of it out. And maybe, like, this is what Leia is doing. I don't know. I'm not trying to rewrite a fucking 40-year-old movie, but it's, um, yeah. When it's working, it really feels inspiring. There's a lot of emotion in it. When you get to like the composited space battle at the end, I think it's pretty dazzling and you see the technical heights, but especially coming off Empire, which just feels so perfectly structured and refined, it can't help but feel like a step down, I think. Absolutely. I wish there was more Leia in that film too. Um, yeah. I was saying, I really like the scene where she's talking to Luke and she figures it out. Like Luke should be the focus, but if you'd made... Luke and Leia the focus. I think if you've made that relationship, because if Luke does fail, and he mentions this, she's the only hope. We know he's not going to fail. He's not, he does not fail. But I think adding that layer of there being another hope almost make it like there'd be more doubt. Like maybe Luke does go, and now we have to have another movie where Leia stops him. Like I wouldn't think that was going to happen, but adding that doubt would be an interesting thing. And having Leia as a more developed character outside of her relationship to Han in that movie would be really neat as well. Because I really like her and Luke as a duality of sorts. Yeah, and Han is just kind of there mm-hmm. in this. Not much to do with him. <laughs> you can tell that Ford felt a little bit disengaged with the part by that point. Mm-hmm. Seems to me that he was a bit ready to move on. So from one space opera trilogy to another, obviously we are here today to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I think before we get into that, we all recently rewatched Volumes 1 and 2. I think, Trevor, you got to see these in theaters, right? Yes. So this past week, the Atlantic Station IMAX here in Atlanta, Georgia was putting on the Guardians of the Galaxy IMAX Trilogy Marathon. I even have a poster for it right there. They gave out free posters for it and everything. Kind of laid out like a rock poster. It's just like one night only, May 3rd. Starting at 7, it was the entire trilogy for almost seven hours. (laughs) (laughs) You did one, two, and then three as well? Yes. Okay, wow. It was one, two, and then three in succession with about like five, ten minute breaks in between. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. 
we did that for the Dark Knight back in the day when the Dark Knight Rises came out back in 2012. They did a marathon of all of them, and they were short breaks. And those are long fucking movies. Yeah, I remember I was begging my mom to take me to go see. Like, I think it was like 16 when the Dark Knight Rises came out. Mm. It was like rural Missouri, and the nearest theater was 50 miles away. She just said, "No, I'm not doing that." <laughs> But yeah, seeing this in IMAX was a real treat because I've never really gone to see these MCU movies in IMAX and I know some of them are really shot with that frame set in mind. Mm. I think Guardians 3 was actually shot entirely in IMAX format like the Suicide Squad was. That's what it said on the posters in my theater, yeah, where it's just like shot for IMAX. It was full frame throughout the entirety of 3, but for 1 and 2, it kept on doing aspect ratio changes like it does in like a Chris Nolan movie or something. Yeah, yeah. Seeing this actually was nostalgic for me. I remember seeing these all upon release, even though I had been disillusioned with the MCU before, I was able to really divorce these movies specifically away from that saga. And I feel like James Gunn has really been able to do that as well. Right when it hits those first notes, that first opening drumbeat and Red Bones come and get your love once he's strolling upon that planet to get that bounty. It just brought me right back to the first time I saw it in 2014, right when on the tail end of high school. It got me so much. It was like the first song I ever put on my Spotify was actually Red Bones Come and Get Your Love. (laughs) One thing that jumps out right away during that scene when I revisit this movie now is just how different Chris Pratt looks and feels in that movie because that casting is coming right off of him being in Parks and Rec. He had not yet been in any of the Jurassic films. I don't think that he had done Lego Movie or it was the same year as Lego Movie, maybe. I think it was the year after the Lego Movie. Okay. 2013. So like his name had become bigger, but he and he obviously is a shirtless scene or whatever. He'd already got trimmed down a bit. But you could tell that the purpose of his casting was to use his kind of, I don't want to be like slovenly charm, but the same charm of Andy on Parks and Rec, where he's just like a dude, where he desperately wants to be cool, but he's just kind of lame. And I think that that helps establish perfectly the tone of what Gunn likes to do. He's going to do things that are kind of like goofy and over the top and cool, but with this little bit of an edge of it's dorky and it's okay that it's a little dorky. It's lame and it's okay that it's a little bit lame. Just think that that's part of his ethos. It is cringe, but it is free. Yeah. (laughs) What I admire about all three of these movies specifically is that they all have a bit of an edge to them that none of the others won't. And some aspects of about three, we'll get into that when we actually start discussing three. But there's always this cosmic element to them that in a ways get thought provoking and sometimes a little bit horrifying Mm. like in guardians 2 when they're doing the whole universe jumping thing and it's warping their (laughs) faces to like terrifying degrees (laughs) causes even root to throw up his sap (laughs) it's such a fucking bizarre scene but i love that scene so much and it's weird things little things like that that really just make me gravitate towards these movies so much something that you said about being able to divorce them from marvel I have a very difficult time doing that with both for different reasons. With the first one, that to me, it's my second favorite movie of the entire MCU. I think that it's got this really airtight script and it almost represents like a perfected version of what Marvel had been doing up to that point with more personality, so much so that almost everything after 2014 has been trying to capture the spark, the magic of that tone and how brisk it is and how it just seamlessly brings you into 
uh, Talking Tree, who all he says is, I am Groot, and Drax, who has no sense of irony, and Rocket Raccoon, who's like a little sadistic mutant with guns, and, you know, it just brings you right into the heart of this weirdness, but ultimately it feels really attached to the whole Infinity Saga. Obviously, Thanos, as the main villain, kind of comes from these movies, like, that's where he's grounded because of Gamora and because of Nebula. And I think two is the one where, like, even though it directly leads you into the events of Infinity War, two is almost completely divorced. It's kind mm -hmm. of amazing how much James Gunn tweaked it, pushed it, and just said, this is just its own beast. This is just a space opera sequel where I think he ratchets up his sadism a little bit. But I think what's interesting about that is, unlike Suicide Squad, which is rated R, has a lot of gore, the Guardians movies and there's a difference between the first two and the third in this regard, are a little more bloodless, which I actually think works in their favor a little bit, because mm -hmm. it makes them feel a little bit more cartoonish or slapstick. Like, no other Marvel movie that I can think of relishes in violence the way that these movies do whenever Yondu is whistling his little arrow through somebody's chest or their yeah. forehead. And it's not like gory Mortal Kombat fucking intestines flying everywhere, but it's kind of the PG-13 version of that. Yeah, especially in 2, where it all leads up to fascinating visuals in the way that James Gunn's really indulged in this violence, because you have that scene in 2 where he's whistling around with that arrow, and you have all the men falling around them. I think that tendency of his leads to some of the most impactful images of these movies, but also there's... The more inward where people are just by themselves and thinking to themselves and seeing what to do next, not in terms of just like plot, but also how to reach where they want to emotionally. You know, to me, from volume one, this is the MCU's best overall ensemble. I am personally a really big fan of that original Avengers movie, and I think that that's a great lineup. Part of what makes that impressive is that it feels cohesive, even though those characters are kind of disparate it's not even like mm -hmm. a real avengers lineup you know it's kind of makeshifts of the mcu's version of that but they work really well together and that's impressive to me with guardians it feels built from scratch with care and they start off and it's a great ensemble with personalities and then in two and three they really do a lot to dig into them to deepen them to complicate them where you've got nebula is mm -hmm. pretty much just like a hard fast villain character in the first movie although with her own motives to where she's turning throughout two, and then when we get into three, it's like a completely different status quo with her. And that feels right. like an organic path that the character took through those three movies, which is not something that I would ever say applies to any of the other Marvel series. Like, Captain America seems to just kind of believe whatever the movie needs him to believe that he's in at that moment. Right. And it doesn't really matter how continuous it feels. And I think that that has everything to do with James Gunn being the singular voice, not the singular voice, but the kind of authoritative voice from movie one to movie three yeah. with these characters. He's even talked about how his other characters were used in Infinity War and Endgame because he was specifically talking about that huge Star-Lord debate where he hits Thanos and whatnot and causes the whole thing to fuck up. And James Gunn was putting in as like, yeah, that wasn't really my decision. That was the decision that Marvel needed for that story to go forward and had nothing to do with me. What's funny about that particular moment in Infinity War, though, is that I really think 
that that is one of the most in-character moments from anyone in the whole movie. It's basically the reaction he has in Volume 2 when Ego does his villain heel turn. And you get that little dolly zoom on his face. And it's like, what? And all of the kind of, I want to be with my daddy shit fades out. And he's like, I'm going to kill this dude. (laughs) And I think it's especially important in Infinity War. I think it ties directly into Guardians 3 because Peter has tied his growth. He has grown as a person. He has become a better, more fulfilled, more happy person. But he has done that by tying his growth to another person. Mm -hmm. To several other people, but specifically to Gamora. And then Thanos rips Gamora from him. And he's back to being the guy we've met at the beginning of the movies. He's rash and reckless, and he doesn't think he's just a bundle of traumas, and his support person is gone, and he can't process it. And so I think it's really one of the best moments in the movie. And then when we get to Guardians 3, I think it pays off that well. I think it delves deeper into that idea of Peter using her as a support person instead of an actual human being. Or not a human being, but whatever she is. So Ben and I actually watched Volume 1 and Volume 2 together with our friend Jake. We did like a little bit of a watch party on those. Ben, did you have any notes, takeaways from either of those two revisiting them? Every time I watch Guardians 2, it gets a little messier. Mm. And every time I watch Guardians 2, I cry a little harder, so I'm not (laughs) sure how to feel about that movie. The older I get, the more the Drax stuff annoys me. But also, the older I get, the more the stuff with Yondu, and especially, especially honestly, with Nebula and Gamora, the more that stuff really hits for me. I think the hug that Gamora gives Nebula at the end, Nebula can't quite reciprocate the hug. I think that's genuinely one of the best moments in the entire MCU franchise. And it's got so many great moments like that, and it's just got so many stupid jokes from Drax and a few others that kind of undercut things. And it's still an absolute favorite of mine, always has been. But like, I wish that I could... Like, do my own cut of the movie, just cut a few jokes out, and I think you'd make a really, really good movie out of that. I'm glad that you brought up Nebula, because I think that her progression is so significant and unexpected, but, you know, it's that classic, almost shonen Dragon Ball, the enemy becomes the ally, but that's such an important element of what this team is. They're almost like the Marvel emotional rehab center for traumatized, abused <laughs> children. Um, right. Which... I think one of the additions in Volume 2 that I didn't really love in Volume 2, I didn't really think it went very many places in Volume 2, and in fact, it's kind of a central sticking point I have with Drax and the sense of humor, is Mantis. Because mm. I think that like a lot of the jokes that they get off in Volume 2 are just sort of like Drax being mean to Mantis, which you're not meant to like take seriously, but it's still just like kind of one mm. note. But her progression into Volume 3, I think, is really significant. Because what I had not considered in Volume 2 was that this group of maladjusted, arrested development, hurt, wounded puppies picked up their own therapist. They went and found an empath, and she became the group's psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Fantastic. (laughs) So yeah, where we pick up in Volume 3 is obviously after the events of Infinity War, after the events of Endgame, Gamora is dead. Gamora lives. There's a past iteration of her that has basically been spliced into the present timeline. She's no longer with the team. Quill is just in the fucking dregs about this, both because he has not processed the woman that he loved dying, and because the woman that he thinks is the woman that he loved does not love him back. He's almost displacing his grief onto his romantic disaffectation. Rocket is you know, doing his best to hold his shit together. Drax is doing Drax stuff. Brute's looking big. Brute's looking <laughs> thick. 
And what I thought was kind of interesting during that whole little opening segment where Rocket's walking around listening to Tommy York and Radiohead's creep, (laughs) which is a great little opening scene where we get reacquainted to the Guardians who are now posted up on Nowhere, which is their base of operations, a big skull floating in space. What was interesting to me is that it seems like Nebula is the closest thing that this group has to a real no-shit leader, which Mm -hmm. fascinates me because she would probably be like, I'm not even a member, blah, 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 blah. But she clearly is the most of everybody there, this one-time torture victim and one-time murderer is the most like adult, head on her shoulders, thinking about where we need to go as a team of anybody there. Yeah, she's pretty much the rock of the group. And uh, (laughs) man, (laughs) things have gotten bad if she's your rock. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Despite swole Groot, despite a sad rocket and Drax just beating up stuff, something ain't right in this group. And it all leans on her in the third one. She's emerged into not just a leader, but a protector. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think that's in and of itself is kind of a trauma response or at least a response to how she was raised that she wants to then be the protector that Gamora never was for her. I think she almost takes on too much. And I think that her arc in the film involves her taking on too much. She criticizes everybody. She wants them to do things a certain way. And that starts hurting everyone's feelings. And I like that the film doesn't put the practicality of the situation above people's feelings. Like she's right. Most of the time she bitches someone out. She's usually correct. She's usually doing something that would be useful for the team. But she's hurting people's feelings, and the film prioritizes the feelings over the practicality. Yeah, because I think if you look at Nebula as the practical rock and the protector, somebody who's trying to be the leader, as I've already kind of implied, Mantis is the emotional rock. Mm-hmm. Right. She's the therapist. Like She's trying to like hold everybody together. Basically, what ends up happening in terms of Nebula being the protector is a character that was foreshadowed in Volume 2 called Adam Warlock fucking flies the hell in and just starts bullseyeing the shit out of everybody, including Rocket, who appears to be dying. Everyone scrambles to try and protect him to stop Warlock because Adam Warlock is trying to take Rocket to the High Evolutionary, who is the person who made Rocket, um, or at least scientifically experimented on Rocket. And I think made that group that he's from, the Sovereign or whatever they're called, the Gold right. People. The Gold Elizabeth the Big Yeah, the long, the tall, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, <laughs> he calls them beautiful airheads. Which is accurate. Who stops him at the end? Is it Groot that stops him at the end? Somebody stops him before he... They all kind of do their part. I actually think it's sort of an interesting thing where he attacks their base, Nebula shoots him, puts him through the wall, he shows up, Groot's fighting him, then Star-Lord's fighting him, and they're all kind of going at him separately instead of as a cohesive unit, which is a big deal when we get to a later point in the movie. We see that like when this group of people fights together, they're just going to fucking lay waste to whoever they're fighting, but when they fight separately, they're much more vulnerable. Absolutely. And I think it's Nebula in the end who fucking like stabs him in the chest. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is Nebula. She got the metal sentinel hand, X-Men sentinel hand. That was fucking metal as hell. Sticks it right through. (laughs) It was metal as hell. Her wings, her little wings were so cool. A quick note, she actually says that that arm was designed by Rocket, which I think alludes quietly to this idea. This movie is, as Trev and I were already kind of talking a little bit about, very divorced from the MCU as a whole, but I think it still understands like Rocket and Nebula were the two guardians that didn't get snapped out. Yeah. They've had five more years of each other's company than maybe some of these mm. other people have had. And they're quietly a little more bonded than you would 
like have expected them to be if you had only seen Guardians 1 and 2. Yeah, absolutely. How did you guys feel about Poulter as Adam Warlock? <laughs> I really think he's great. I think that he is... So Warlock in general feels almost tacked on. He feels like a plot device to get Rocket from one place to another to get Rocket in serious physical conditions so that the plot can commence. But, but... I think that the way he plays it, the mama's boy thing that he's doing, even he is an abused child. Like everyone, everyone in this film is an abused child. And I think yeah. he plays it well enough that it just, it does work, even if I don't feel like it's structurally well written, but he gives it everything. And I think he's a joy to watch. Mm. Although I really like him and he's so charismatic in the role and so funny, there's a part of me that I wish he had a little bit more stake in it. Even though I, I really do love this movie, I do think... There could be a lot more done with him. However, I feel like there are other pretty cataclysmic things that happen towards the end that he is involved in that I do think is pretty satisfying. But there's still this pretty meaty segment of the film that I was just like, oh, I kind of wish he was here. I don't totally mind him being peripheral because I think something that I like about the Sovereign a bit is just that they are an enemy that the Guardians have picked up over time doing other shit. Specifically things that Rocket has done, actually, from Volume 2. It's kind of a big central conflict. But it's this idea that the world is big. And if you fly around the galaxy long enough, do it enough stuff, there are just going to be some people that continue to harass you no matter what else is going on. Or they get involved in these other plots. And so it kind of helps, even though it feels a little unfocused or like it's extraneous, that helps to kind of make the world feel a little bigger to me, mm-hmm. actually. Here's another example of that, is Gamora, the version that lives in this world, has been dispatched, and she now hangs out with the Ravagers, with Sylvester Stallone and the former compatriots of Yondu and all those guys. And she's with a Ravager faction. And I think one of the important implications of the movie, just like the whole five years between Rocket and Nebula, is that that time matters too, even though it's not necessarily part of the adventure that you're seeing. Mm. And I think that that's something that Gunn is keeping in mind with the screenwriting of everything is that there are relationships and conflicts that almost happen outside of the frame that come into the frame of time because of the adventure itself. And I think that that gives it a truly comic book flair. I think that this movie feels as much as any movie I've ever seen like reading a full arc of comics, which makes it structurally a little funky, but at the same time, it just feels like you're getting absorbed into this full world of science fiction and gross oddball shit. Yeah, I was thinking how much I was relishing in the Orgocorp sequence. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. God. That set is so off the fucking wall bonkers, like, once you're thinking of it, because it's a whole, like, facility build off of, like, is it organs? Yeah, it's, like, biological material. The surface of their little space station has, like, little hairs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're using a laser to cut it out. There's, like, pus floating up in the fucking space. Uh, <laughs> Gun going back to some of his trauma gross-out stuff, mm, totally. which is as much as you can put it in an MCU PG-13 movie. But it was properly gross and properly cosmic and weird. Just funny, just kind of joyful and creative. And I think relative to a lot of newer MCU stuff, I just thought that the sets in this were quite well done. Yes. Whether you're talking about on Nowhere or in the Orgo Corp or when we get to the High Evolutionary, just a lot of environments that feel creative and realized in a way that not every Marvel movie can say. You mentioned it feeling very comic booky, and I want to piggyback yeah. back on what you just said and when you mentioned that it was very comic booky. One of the most famous comic book arcs of all time 
is the Dark Phoenix art. X-Men, Dark Phoenix, wherein Jean Grey gets possessed by the Phoenix Force and becomes a monster, effectively. People forget that like a third of that art is spent dealing with Jason Wingard, the mastermind, which is a character that doesn't matter and nobody cares about. <laughs> and then halfway through, they run into aliens and Professor X starts flirting with one of them and none of this is relevant to the plot. Right. Like, it is. It's very scattershot. But the thing that makes comics like that work, these, these big, epic melodramas, is... The locations in a lot of times, like the emotions for sure, but then the mm-hmm. locations as well. And I think Guardians has always succeeded in that. Like the idea that they're flying around and they're piloting the head of a dead god is so cool. It's such right. an interesting idea. Good imagery to go with the good emotions. And I don't think you get one without the other. Oh, of course. I was also thinking of the uh, cult Counter-Earth. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Counter-Earth. Yeah. That also felt like weird and out there in comic booky, especially with the high evolutionaries whole shindig there. I think it's also telling that the high evolutionary's version of a perfect earth is like middle-class suburbia. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it's like fucking nightmare. Every house looks exactly the same. They've all right. got the same rose bush out in front. It looks nice, but he's clearly never lived in a suburban house because that is not perfect. <laughs> right. It's the kind of life that leads cockroach people to doing meth. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I want to say in terms of the comic book stuff, I think it just allows you to kind of run away with your imagination and think, This is on such a cosmic scale that the brevity of a movie will never be able to capture everything. So, of course, there's little stuff that's running off of the margins. And it works. He makes it feel like a very tight cinematic experience. But unlike the first Guardians movie, and I think the reason why it's better than that for me, is it doesn't feel so trapped into its narrative confines that you don't get to have the rest of the world. Mm. And something that really speaks to that and i think is very much why i read it as kind of a comic book arc is you have this structural framing device once rocket has been incapacitated which is his origin story basically i had no idea prior to this that rocket raccoon was just wolverine from the (laughs) x-men having adamantium fucking laced on his bones by william striker but but he is throughout the adventure scenes are segmented and broken up with these flashback sequences to rocket all the way back when he was a baby raccoon to the point when he's being experimented on to meeting fellow experimented on animals in the high evolutionaries pens and it's just this one of our friends compared it to the plague dogs which is uh, by the same director it's martin rosen same director as watership down and that's a real accurate comparison it reminds me of sid's toys in toy story Mm -hmm. where it's like these freakish mutant monster things but the point is the sentiment behind them and that just felt like such a classic james gunn thing right it's like the grody weird shit but inside of it it's pure pathos and the bunny even looks like the little doll head yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) i mean it feels like very similar to me to those characters like the walrus, he's like on the fucking wheels. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think is his name. Teefs. Yeah. I would like to, this is this is not relevant to movies and it's not important. I would like to point out that in the comics, that character's name is Wal-Russ. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bunny named herself Floor because she was on the floor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just cute. There's like a lot of great character detail and charm to those scenes that mm-hmm. I remember. Which is impressive because like, all of them are set inside of this, like, fucking grim, rusted animal cage. Right. <laughs> Filled with their own poop, I think, too. Yeah, it's like weird little pellets and stuff. Yeah. Little 
gadgets that Rocket has squirreled away. <laughs> Those scenes really ended up impacting me pretty deeply. And I think the film needs that as its framing device as well, because you need to have some understanding what Rocket's been through. And I think there's a little moment later on where the other Guardians get to see like a glimpse of what Rocket was going through. And we right. don't actually see what they're seeing, but it's Nebula. Nebula remarks that that's even worse than what she went through. And we've heard so much about what Thanos did to her. Right. Like seeing what we did see of Rocket and then seeing what she says about the actual surgeries is just emotionally impacting when all taken together. And it's really, I think, the core of the movie. Yeah, it actually enhances that scene hearkening back into the first one where you really understand more where Rocket's coming from in this scene where he's drunkenly got his gun pointed towards Drax. He's hired of being called Vermin. And here you get the real big impact of why he responds so much to people's perspective of him. Mm. He's a hard, rough guy, but he's also somebody who also really wants to be not liked, more or less like seen. And here you get a lot of how he reacts through the whole thing. Even though like half the movies, he's even unconscious. Right. He still walks away with it being more of his movie because he gets so much development in it. I think that's a really interesting choice because for me, throughout the first two Guardians movies, as well as Infinity War and Endgame, Bradley Cooper as Rocket has kind of just risen up to be my favorite, maybe just the best of the MCU characters. There's a few that we could debate here and there. Your Lokis, maybe your Tony Stark, I don't know. But that Cooper performance has been so good and that character so good and obviously so emotionally vital to these films. It's a real gambit to lay him out on a fucking table and basically say, you're not going to be in this movie. I'm going to center it around all the characters besides you in an active adventuring way. And then the rest of it's going to be like more about his emotional thing. I think it speaks to how effective those flashback scenes are, that it doesn't collapse the film. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. it could, I yeah, think, absolutely. missing yeah. Rocket. Like, no Yondu, no Rocket. That's fucking hard, dude. Like, you just really <laughs> tied your hand behind your back. And I think that this movie does something that I really appreciate, which is that it de-emphasizes Quill. And I don't mean to say that it does not develop him and doesn't do interesting things with him. It's just that volume two for me kind of feels a little bit too much like he's at the center yeah. of the ensemble. And here it feels more like an ensemble. It feels like every character has if not equal weight, you know, equal identity and purpose and what they want and everything like that. Gunn does a fine job, Gamora and Nebula, everybody in volume two, but I think it's an even better job here of just making it feel like one group of people. Yeah. They also lose Gamora. Like, they don't lose her as in she's not in the movie, but they lose the Gamora that had that original rapport with the team. True. And so you don't have the original Gamora. You don't have Rocket, you don't have Yondu for most of the movie. So I think then it becomes on Mantis to step up, Quill to step up in order to make this team feel cohesive and fun to watch. And they do, is the thing, is they do. And he manages to write like a pretty new Guardian squad and make them just as entertaining and enjoyable to watch as the original while bridging over until the stars kind of return towards the end of the movie. Yondu doesn't come back. Well, he has this moment, but... um, Yeah, um, (laughs) great, great. That's really quite a... That's some good shit with Raglan. Oh, yeah. yeah. Some good shit. I wanted to, like, erupt in, ch- in that moment. I was just like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's another one with Cosmo, the Russian dog, that is also in that scene mm. where there's, like, a payoff of basically a gag that runs throughout the entire film of Kraglin calling Cosmo a bad dog. Obviously, it's kind of building you up to that point at the end. And when it happens, it's just like, man, obviously this had to happen, but damn, that was satisfying. <laughs> right. It was, yeah. 
it's kind of how I knew I was receptive to the film is like the things that I saw coming still did what they were supposed to do. Mm. So I want to talk about two things really quickly. Two characters who we might consider to be very opposed in this film, even though they don't necessarily go face to face. One of them is Mantis, who I've already brought up, really dialing it back to Nebula. Nebula's frustrated at what we're talking about. She's frustrated that Quill's being a sack of shit. She's frustrated that Rocket's on a table. And she's kind of laying into everybody. She's particularly laying into Mantis and Drax, who admittedly fuck up a lot. (laughs) We love them. They fuck up a lot. And there's a particularly great confrontation that she has with Mantis, where Mantis challenges her two things. One, why is it that you are so obsessed with competence? Why is doing things right the only thing that you care about? Which I think is a really interesting thought. And then two, that Drax is the only member of the team that doesn't hate himself, Mm -hmm. even though he has also suffered profound loss, which we know because he talks about it a lot in that first movie, losing his wife and kids. It's a really interesting thought about how the self-destructive tendencies of this team harm the team as much as any of their enemies do. And I think that that's really compelling to me. And it's something where in that argument between Nebula and Mantis, you can see Nebula get pissed and then go, mm-hmm. fuck, she's right. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is yeah. really great. There's a moment right after that scene with Drax, where Drax kind of proves it doesn't matter so much about competence and being the correct one all the time, being right all the time, being strong all the time. Really like that whole scene because it just feels like Nebula's entire worldview just gets shattered in a moment because she built herself up about being the best because that's her father one supposed to be the best supposed to win 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 exactly and she's improved she helped kill him but still she needs to be the best exactly that all really just ties into what i feel is the film's central message and that is accepting people for who they are mm. but also giving them the support that they need and not really trying to fix them despite their flaws nebula can't really fix manchester drax but they can learn to process nebula getting over what she doesn't like about Mantis and Drax, but also it's the central conflict between the High Evolutionary and Araka Raccoon, because High Evolutionary is basically just a eugenist Nazi scientist. Right. And Rocket says the lines, you're trying to make them perfect, you just didn't like the way they were. It's a lesson that everybody learns in the group because Nebula learns to accept Drax and Mantis, but also Peter accepts that, yes, Gamora is alive, but this is not the Gamora that loved him. This is the Ravager Gamora who finds a lot of happiness and glory in fighting along the Ravengers and not being in love with Peter Quill. Right. Which I think is a really cool and mature thing to put in a movie like this. Moving on is healthy and not hanging on to that shit. Seems like every one of these movies are kind of pussyfooting around (laughs) confronting challenging emotions. And this is kind of why I admire also, this is probably the most mature these Guardians movies have been regardless as well, because like it's a little bit more grim and a little bit more serious because it's dealing with literal animal cruelty Mm. and eugenics to a certain extent. But it also has a pretty hilarious (laughs) F-bomb. A gruesome scene where Rocket Raccoon just rips apart the high evolutionary's face and a literal otter gets shot. Yeah. God. This is as dark as it's going to get. And this is what PG-13 is all about, baby. (laughs) You said something a second ago that I wanted to go back to. Oh, oh, no, it was Gamora. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gamora. I think my favorite bit is when she at the very end goes back and, you know, you see her with the Ravagers again. But the part that I really, really like 
is she almost extends him an olive branch of sorts. She's leaving and he's accepting this. And she says, I bet we were fun. And an earlier version of Peter Quill, I think would have taken that as a sign of hope, right? Like, okay, maybe if I talk to her some more, we can make this happen again. We can do this again. But he doesn't. He just says, we were, and they walk away. And he's moved on. He's accepted this. And she gives him the olive branch because there's no ill will there. She recognizes how hard this must be for him, but he is letting her go and... She is appreciative of that, so she gives him a little bit, and it's like it really moved me. It's a really subtle relationship, and I think mm. it was one of the things that I wanted the movie to prove because I don't really like the idea of bringing Gamora back and having her be around. It's science fiction. It's part of the whole fucking endgame everything, so what are you going to do? I'll get over it, just like I got over Baby Groot. Yeah. <laughs> but it was really important to me to see that this script and this film treated Gamora like a new person because she is a new person. And that was kind of where I started off with Quill. And it's almost obvious from scene one, he needs to grieve this person that he lost, but he doesn't know how to do that because he can't quite accept that she's gone when she isn't. And that's like a really unique problem for like these spacefaring characters who are in the sci-fi world. But I think that they do a really incredible job of asserting that she is her own person demonstrating that she is her own person even when gamora gets involved in the conflict she makes a choice to be involved she makes a choice first to stay on the ship and not be involved because she's like that's not part of my fucking deal but then eventually she does get drawn to the action again by adam warlock but also because she finds reasons to invest and i think that that's important because it just shows that she's like any other member of this team making a choice to be around and to engage the other character that i think we just have to shout out is that high evolutionary who's played by chukwudi iwuji fucking awesome sadistic nasty villain performance oh yeah yeah. absolutely loved it i'm tired of empathetic villains this was a real shot in the arm of just a dude who is vile and for me after the first two guardians movies center around degrees of parental trauma peter losing his mother peter's conflict with his father the two daughters of Thanos. This is one of the most impactful kind of like quote unquote father figure type villains of this whole series to me. Obviously, he's just a scientist. He's not anybody's biological father in the film. But his whole deal about like, no, you have to be perfect and you have to be the way that I made you. And then getting mad about the kids that he made that are just like, it's only rote memorization. They don't have any real intelligence. I mean, it just sounds like a dad to me. It just sounds like one of the world's shittiest fucking fathers. And one of the things that I think is so profound and works for me so well about the movie is that it shows how being this perfectionistic parent does not create a perfect world. But just because the people that he makes aren't perfect doesn't mean that they should be fucking eradicated. They still have a right to life, even if they are abominations. That much of it kind of reminds me of Lilo and Stitch. So... That's a good note for me because I love that movie. (laughs) I'm trying to remember this one movie kind of reminded me of has that same kind of villain model, but I can't get it off the top of my head. Control freak, just like you got to be like this, got to be like this. Perhaps maybe Blade Runner a little bit with Tyrell. Mm. There is kind of a Dr. Frankenstein-ness 
to oh, the dude in yeah. just like the most basic way, you know, just mad scientist. Yeah, oh yeah. Something I think is interesting here is that in a lot of films that feature, you know, a villain who's like, I want to make things perfect. You know, we run into Nazis all the time and Nazis have a sure. very clear set of goals. We all know what the Nazis goals were. We know what their version of perfection looked like. The version of perfection that the high evolutionary looks like doesn't really make sense to me as a version of perfection or really at all. He uses American middle-class suburbs, but with animal people as his perfection. I think you could interpret that as just, these are the confines of the movie. It's not that serious. But I think there is an angle to him. Even he's not sure what perfect is. I think he thinks he'll know it when he sees it, but I don't think that he actually has a perfect in mind. I don't know if that's a, like, how does one come up with perfect? What is perfect? I think that's really well represented by the fact that he thinks that batch 89, that Rocket comes from, is 100% expendable, but by the mm-hmm. end, he's the only creation that he seems to be single-mindedly focused on capturing and studying mm-hmm. because of Rocket's creative intelligence. And so it's like, even when he made the magical, that's like, oh, wow, I created this raccoon that's so smart, he didn't even realize that he had done it. He thought that right. he, you know, fucked up. He was so arrogant that it knocked him off balance when this little raccoon knew more than he did. And it freaked him out, basically. Right. What do we think about the soundtrack? Oh, yeah. I was about to actually lead into that. <laughs> it's uh, very different a little bit. It's going into that 90s edge. It opens on Radiohead's Creep for the opening credits, as opposed to Come and Get Your Love or Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's James Gunn getting serious. And it's just like, yeah, this is a far different tone than what we're used to. You got a Flaming Lips track. Yeah, on there. Do you realize? Do you realize? Perhaps my favorite needle drop of the whole thing, though, is "We Care a Lot" from Faith No More. Mm. I thought the scene with them walking to that specific song was Pinnacle Guardians. Yeah. Do you remember where that shows up, Ben? I think it's like a light fight scene. It might be. Is that when they're walking out of the Orgo Corp altogether and they're like injured? Yeah. And, like Nathan yeah. Williams flying around behind yeah. them. Yeah. Which I thought was a good place to drop that. They also, at the beginning of the Orgo Corp scene, they needle drop In the Meantime by Space Hog, which is used in the trailers a lot. Mm. Like, I really like the way Gun shoots to music. I'm going to use perhaps the guy I think is probably best at shooting to music in terms of these big energetic scenes, at least. And that's Boz Lerman. And I think that mm. James Gunn is tapping into some of what Boz Lerman's got with some of these, some of these needle drop fight scenes that he's doing. You know, Boz Lerman doesn't do fight scenes as much, but there's a similar approach to fight scenes as there is to dance scenes, which is what Boz Lerman tends to do. And I think that you got a lot of that here. There's an energy to it that the music helps bring it, but the action, the editing, and I think that's all there. So you get these really fun sequences set to high energy music. And then when he brings the energy of the music down, the whole energy of the film comes down. It's a really tight balancing act that he's pulling, but I think it works really well. For those energetic cuts, I will say that of the two Chris Pratt films from this year, this one definitely has the better Beastie Boys No Sleep Till Brooklyn needle drop (laughs) (laughs) over the Super Mario Brothers movie. (laughs) At first, I was annoyed that I was using No Sleep Till Brooklyn because it was used in Mario earlier this year. (laughs) I'll be the counter voice here because we've been enthusiastic. Some like James Gunn's shit is on the nose. Like, and I think that he, there's literally like, do you realize we're floating through space while they're fucking floating through space, right? It's like, ah. Right. So there's a certain degree to which you just kind of got to go with that. But then I right. think exactly what Ben said, just that energy level is there. And so once you start, it's hard to have reservations when it's 
having that much fun with it. I just wish that someday James Gunn will do a scene to looking down a barrel of a gun. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I loved about that Beastie Boys drop? It actually reminds me considerably, although I think it's even better, of the Leonard, the sequence in uh, Kingsman, the Matthew Vaughn film, mm. where oh, they're yeah. in the church doing that shootout. It's a free bird. Free bird. That scene in the Kingsman, it's got a very similar level of like just dynamic, lots of fucking things happening, except instead of orienting around just one Colin Firth, it's orienting you around this entire team. And this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, like whereas before they were fighting separately, in this sequence, they are like in harmony right and that's the music they're all together in step and it's fucking cool it's easily i think the best fight sequence in any marvel movie right i would say so because mm-hmm. right when it ended i was just like let's see that again <laughs> yeah rewind ben did you have a counter there yeah the only other one would be and it's not really because it's a fight scene but just everything that happens directly after banner says that's my secret cap yeah in yeah Avengers. that's fair. For the next five minutes or so, that shit is on just high tier for, like, that arc shot and then Hulk smash and Hulk starts jumping into buildings and shit. Like, There's a great little Infinity War moment where Thor shows up and I think, mm-hmm. I forget who it is, like, you guys are screwed now. Better, I think. There's just kind of an electricity to that bit. But I think just in terms of the choreography and how mm-hmm. one of these scenes is put together, it just was, like, pure mayhem. I really love that. Just dudes getting, like, fucking stabbed to the wall. Yeah. There's a bit where, like, Nebula gets beaten to shit and does her thing where she kind of reassembles herself. Gunn finds so many ways to get gross and nasty with this movie that are subtle. There's a part where her neck is, like, completely fucking broken and she's fighting <laughs> yeah. with, like, her head hinged off of her neck and just <laughs> yeah, flopping like around. fucking facing backwards. Yeah. I was, like, squirming in my seat, but I was also <laughs> thinking that's the coolest fucking thing I've seen all year. Yeah. <laughs> The song that plays at the end of the movie, or in the movie's big finale sequence, I guess it's more it's denouement sequence rather than its finale sequence, is The Dog Days Are Over by Florence and the Machine. And I really love this usage here for a couple of reasons. Directly before it, Quill has decided he's going to go home, he's going to leave the Guardians, he's going to go return to Earth, and then Mantis is going to go out on her own to discover who she is, and Rocket is upset because his friends are leaving. And they form little groups. Rocket's going to start the new Guardians of the Galaxy. Nebula's going to run the town. Drax is going to help her. But fundamentally, the group is splitting up. And before he leaves, Quill gives Rocket his Zoom. Little Alf card. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And for all these movies, music is Quill's coping mechanism. It's what he has left of his mother. In a way, it's what grounds him to his childishness that he needs to overcome. Not that music is childish, but the way he approaches it often is. And the music has grown up with him over the course of the series, I think, by the third one, the music itself has gotten more experimental, more interesting, not a ton more. It's still not a ton of deep cuts, but we've gotten to more challenging music than we were when we started. Because we were starting with the Jackson 5 and Marvin Gaye. By the end, we're doing Faith No More. And I think that at the end, he gives this to Rocket. He doesn't need it anymore. And he gives it to Rocket because Rocket does. And in this big sequence, Drax finally dances. He's been talking for three yeah. movies about how he's never going to dance. And he finally dances. You know, Nebula dances. It's just a celebration of music without the one character who has always defined himself by music. It's so emotionally explosive. Yeah. It just hits you. I feel like I would have cried harder if I didn't put two very emotionally exhausting movies by themselves before this. (laughs) And also I was watching this at like midnight, 2 (laughs) a.m. But it just hits you so much. And just thinking about like where these characters end up and how they go through it just 
get me right in the damn feels. It's such a satisfying send-off to just about everybody, and I really love the way it ends, too, especially with that song. Superhero movies, to me, are almost universally, maybe just universally, about wish fulfillment. I think a lot of the ones that we consider emotionally significant, from like Mask of the Phantasm to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, what deepens a lot of them is that there is a cost to the wish fulfillment, whether that's Uncle Ben or wanes where there is a certain traumatic shadow that gives definition to that little two-dimensional image of wish fulfillment what i really like about guns movies this trilogy as a whole but really 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 this third one is that it moves beyond the idea of like trauma as the source of power or even trauma as the source of bonding like all these people have bonded together and they have similar backgrounds peter says it in the first movie we're a group of losers because we've all lost something and it's both like they're lame and because they've all endured this certain loss. But what brings them together is not their loss. It's their togetherness. It's their family that they're able to build together. It's the affection and acceptance that they're able to give each other. And at the end of the day, to have Gamora, who you know is not the original Gamora, walk back into her world of family with the Ravagers, to see Peter walk away from this, it suggests a level of maturity to say, like, we've built enough of a family and a home, enough of a loving core, that any one of these people could come back at any time. And so, of course, they need to leave and go be themselves too, just like a real family does. There's something really captivating, I think, about how Gunn has rendered these characters, brought them to this point, and even kind of gestures that it'll keep progressing, that Rocket and Nebula and Drax, they all have work to do, that there's still a future ahead for all of them. Even if we never see a Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 4 again, the world keeps going. The story keeps going, even though the movie ends. And that's really quite something for any U.S. blockbuster, let alone a Marvel movie in whatever phase five that we're now in. The (laughs) follow-up to Quantumania, quite a bit better, it seems like. Right, and this feels more final than Endgame feels. I agree. We reached the end of the road with so many of these characters. Like, I'm convinced we're going to see, like, probably two or three of these Unless there's like a TV show with some people. Craglin and Cosmo on Disney+. Plus. Let's get that booted up. <laughs> right. Trev, thanks so much for coming on and talking about the Guardians trilogy with us. This has been great. Glad to have you back again. Glad to be back. It was so exciting talking to you and Ben. Always love talking to you all about stuff. Anytime y'all need me back on, I'm glad to hop. We will certainly keep you in mind and talk to you in the future, man. Have a good one. You too, man. Ben, you want to drop any closing thoughts? Um... I have one silly one, and then I have an actual one. Shoot. The silly one is, there's a song that plays when they're on Counter-Earth. It's this, like, really, like, upbeat, poppy Japanese song. I I looked this up. It is a J-pop rendition of one of Chopin's waltzes. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. We needed one absolutely (laughs) ridiculous deep cut. Thank you, James Cut. Right. Yeah. He has them. He just doesn't use them. (laughs) <laughs> he said on Twitter about he's always gotten the songs he wanted except one for this movie. And I wonder if he like, because clearly I feel like he has a deeper knowledge of things, right? And I wonder if he like specifically dumbs it down a little bit for Marvel's purposes or if these are just what he went with. Yeah, it's hard to tell. There's like a lot of it where it's just so contextually appropriate that it couldn't have been another song. Like you wouldn't go with another Fleetwood song besides Break the mm-hmm. Chain. Because Break the Chain is right. the one that makes sense there. Versus right. like no Sleep Till Brooklyn, you probably could have done any number of Beastie Boys songs right there, just yeah. because what you need is the energy. 
Absolutely. Like you could have thrown sure shot in there and I wouldn't have been a problem. You could have thrown in fight for your right if you needed to. Like, But I think then there's like a certain level of like cohesiveness of like getting the same level of songs. And at least in mm-hmm. volumes one and two, that's his mom's favorite pop songs from the right. radio in the 80s. You know, it's a little bit of a different sensibility for the first two, at least. Final thought. I had one final. I had a final thought, but it's funny. To- oh, <laughs> you mentioned Mantis a lot, and you mentioned Mantis in relation to Drax. One of the things I think it's a bit of writing that I think Gunn has clearly evolved since 2014 because Gunn famously had all those tweets, the very inappropriate tweets. And I think some of that even carries over into Guardians. One at the end of the movie, Drax calls Gamora a green whore. <laughs> yeah. Which doesn't make any sense because he'd have to literally think that she was a prostitute because he doesn't understand metaphor, which is not a big deal. But I think there's a meanness to Drax that kind of gets damped down over the course of the series as he grows. And more importantly, as Gunn grows and realizes that the way in which he used to joke is no longer appropriate because the whole thing feels like therapy to him. Like, yeah, totally. He's doing therapy through <laughs> these movies and he's growing as a person. So Drax is that. Yeah, there's so many parental strife found family there's even a moment that i love in this speaking back of mantis where she does like a nasca and the ohms moment mm-hmm. with the type of alien that you see them fighting in the opening scene of volume two i don't know what the hell that's called with the tentacles and the big rows of teeth and the rainbow vomit where she like pacifies all of them and i think it's just an interesting progression from movie one to movie three of not just getting softer but getting more human getting more emotional mm-hmm. and then also Having a raccoon rip a man's face off. Right, because that's awesome. You have to include things that are awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. This is my favorite James Gunn movie. Not quite my favorite Marvel movie, but it's pretty damn close. I feel like if you turned on Avengers and then you turned on Guardians 3, like once you can own both, I feel like it'd be pretty equal. If not, there's not a lot of separation there. Either way, really, I I wouldn't even say surprised. I I was going to say pleasantly surprised by this movie, but just, you know, it was pleasant. (laughs) It met my expectations. It exceeded my expectations. It you know, it was the movie that it needed to be, right. and it felt like a really tender way for Gunn to say goodbye to these characters and to this series. Absolutely, absolutely. You mentioned in your review, you said, this is the movie Gunn has been trying to make for years. Feels like it. I think that's 100% accurate. You know, I think, honestly, it's helpful that he's talking about doing Superman. Superman is not a scumbag, but he's yeah. been making films yeah. about scumbags for the last 10 years. And I think that he needed to finish making films about scumbags so he could make a film about Superman. And I'm not sure that he can make a film about Superman. But I feel like if he's going to, he has to get the scumbag out of his system. If you know what I mean? Like he has to feel like he can be a good guy again. What I think this movie shows is that he's got a capacity for understanding all of the characters, Mm -hmm. including the villains. I think that he understands the importance of family really well, especially like adoptive found families as the Kents would be. And it makes me think that even though I'm not sure that he would nail it, it makes me more optimistic that he could. Yeah, agreed. It might be an important step for him to move on from delving in the muck, which is what he's doing. He's delving in the muck to get himself out of it, but maybe it'll be helpful to stand out in the sunlight for a while, if that makes sense. Mm, Yeah, totally. Well, I think that about wraps us. Thank you, Ben, for coming on and talking about the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, please do check out our other episodes. This one's fallen right in the middle of our Czechoslovak New Wave series, so do check those out. We've got previous MCU stuff. You can listen to us talking about Wakanda forever. And uh, yeah, that's that. Thank you all for listening. Bye, everybody. She hit the wrong corners and she hit-